Good morning, church. Good morning. Just take your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 19. I don't know that any better worship music could have been picked this morning for us and the topic that uh, the passage presents with us this morning. Acts chapter 19, and we'll start in verse 21. Uh, Pastor Shane said this is a great passage of Scripture in the book of Acts, and it certainly is, but what he didn't tell you is earlier in the week when he asked me to preach, I asked him if we could skip it. <laughs> because at first read, it did not look at any, to me of any significance. Uh, it, it didn't seem to have any grasp to it uh, or any point to it. But the more I read and studied this week, the more I almost think, I don't know if you can really get uh, in a more concise narrative more of the themes of the book of Acts than you have in this passage. Amen. And so uh, I want to I introduce our sermon this morning kind of with this thought. Have you ever, in terms of the gospel, wondered, maybe in your life or the life of another individual, why the gospel has not changed someone? Like something is left out of either their faith in the gospel or the presentation of the gospel, their understanding of the gospel, as maybe you just tried to share it and you're like, something's, you're not getting it or I'm not sharing it right, something is amiss here. Well, and I think, well, I, I, as you think about that, maybe in your own life, maybe here this morning as you're uh, coming to Maisel Baptist Church, maybe this is your first time, maybe you've been many times, maybe you're a member here, you've been here your whole life, but the gospel just has not yet changed you. The gospel, the good news of Jesus has not yet just done something to you that has made you a different person. We talk about we're born-again Christians. And if you were to be honest, maybe you'd say, I don't know that I've ever been different. I don't know if I've ever had that kind of experience where Jesus has really changed me, honestly. Well, could that be there's something in the gospel you haven't realized yet? That being said, uh, I want us to go to the passage. And this passage is very interesting. And the question we have to ask when we go to any scripture is this. You know, most people first ask, what, what do I get out of that? That's the, that may be a good place to end, but it's not the right place to start. Right. The right place to start is, who did the author of whatever scripture you're reading, what did they intend to mean when they wrote this? So we know Luke wrote the book of Acts, so we have to ask ourselves, why did Luke put this narrative in here? And let me, as we read it, you'll see why this is an interesting question, particularly concerning this passage. Because, as you look, um, there's no great speech by Paul. You know, the start of Acts, Peter was the hero. But as we go through Acts, now Paul becomes the, uh, well, Jesus is the hero, of course. But uh, the man God is mostly using is Paul. In every narrative, Paul is victorious in some way. He comes out with a great sermon, and people get saved, and people want to kill him. <laughs> but in this passage, he doesn't even get to speak. In fact, it'd be interesting who does speak. Um, and so commentators, you know, it's their job to wonder, why is this? Um, because everything in the Bible that's there is important. And so as we read this, just want you to think through that. Why did Luke, and many things happened to Paul. Many things happened to Paul that didn't make it into the book of Acts or into the Bible. So why did Luke put this part in? And that's the job of the pastor. That's the job of the Christian. That's the job of every person who picks up the Bible to read it. Uh, rightly. So let's look at the passage starting in verse 21. And as you think of that, let us read God's word. And when these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in his spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. 
So he went into Macedonia, two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. Now you read that, and there's places, and Paul's going places. And I first, once again, start reading this. I thought, I'm just going to start reading verse 23 with the congregation. Verse 21 and 22 doesn't seem to have any real implications for us today. But the more I study, the more I see it. That's the main point, and we'll, we'll get back to why here in just a second. And I hope it's plain. Verse 23, And about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. Um, so this is all about the way. Uh, early Christians wanted to be called people, followers of the way. They did not want to be called Christians. Early in the book of Acts we saw where the term uh, people being called Christians was a derogatory term, in fact. But they wanted to be called this. So this whole narrative has to do with the way. Okay, Jesus said, I am the for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation, and he said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. So here Paul's in Ephesus, as you remember. He's been there all during Acts chapter 19. Pastor Shane so uh, greatly pointed out last time, he's, he's at Ephesus for two to two and a half years. That's a long time for Paul to stay in a place. But in Ephesus was uh, the largest temple to the goddess Diana. And the goddess Diana, this temple that was there, it was like six flags over a pagan god. I mean, it was humongous. Um, literally, uh, the, sh the shrine is still there, and archaeologists have dug it up. This thing was four football fields long, and it was three football fields wide. I don't know what you all think of everything in yardage and, and that kind of thing. I don't know if that helps you. But there was 127 pillars in this temple that were 60 feet high. That's a pretty large temple. And so people from all over the Roman world would come to this temple, and these guys made money by selling souvenirs. You go somewhere, you get a souvenir. I don't know why. I always want the magnet on the refrigerator. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what... Souvenir you always like to buy, but that people would take souvenirs of shrines of the goddess Diana. And so that's how these guys made their money. And they, it says they didn't make a little bit of money. They made a lot of money doing this. Okay, let's pick it back up in verse 26. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying, they are not gods which are made with hands. Um, We'll speak more about that. Verse 27, So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all of Asia and the world worship. Demetrius has got the labor union together of souvenir makers, and he said, we're going to lose all of our money, uh, and that's one problem, but the other problem is the great goddess Diana is not going to be worshipped if Paul, we let Paul keep going. Verse 28. Now, when they had heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians, for the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater in one accord. This theater still stands today. It holds 24,000 people. Here we see it was full. 24,000 angry people. Worshiping Diana. Uh, they, went to the, they rushed into the theater with one accord. Having seized Gaius and um, Aristarchus and Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go in to the people, the disciples would not allow him. Paul wants to go speak to this angry ravaging crowd of 24,000 people. 
And the disciples say, "Uh uh-uh, Paul, you won't make it. It's not a good idea. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him pleading that he would not venture into this theater. Paul, don't go. It's not going to be good for you. They'll kill you in there. You're the one making them mad, supposedly. Verse 32. So therefore cried one thing and some another. For the assembly was confused. I find this interesting. Listen to what the rest of the verse. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Doesn't that seem like most riots today and most protesters? Ah, why are we here? I don't know. We're just angry. <laughs> why? Why are you, you know, don't you love the, the CNN reporters? Why are you out here burning stuff? I don't know. I'm just mad. Oh, okay. Go on then. That's fine. Uh, And so this was happening here. In verse 33, And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. So this Jewish man tries to stand up and speak. And Alexander motioned with his hands and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So this Jewish man tries to speak. They uh, sweep him off the stage. And for two hours they sing, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. It's like a lot of modern worship songs for two hours, singing six words. That's what they're doing. Verse 35. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, the city clerk was the man who run the temple. He was the one in charge of this large, humongous temple to the goddess Diana. And here he quiets the crowd, and he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus or from heaven and from heaven. Verse 36, Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. He's saying, hey, we serve the great goddess Diana whose uh, legend tells us a, a meteor fell from uh, the sky and they thought it looked like the princess Diana. Most people didn't think that, but there are a few that did, so they built this huge temple. Anyway, so he said it's an undeniable fact that we got uh, the goddess Diana's image fell straight from heaven. Undeniable. We worship the one true God, people. We worship the great goddess Diana. Since that's, we need to calm down over this. He said, verse 37, For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemies of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open, and they are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. In other words, there's courts. You can go bring this to the courts if you really got a problem. Verse 40, for we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Let us pray, and then let us uh, begin to think about this passage. Father, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts, would point out in our own life what this passage means. Uh, And we can't rightly understand this without your Holy Spirit, the one who inspired these scriptures, who used godly men and women to write them down as they were so moved by the Holy Spirit. And God, we need you to so move on us today. So, Lord, we may not be the same as when we walked in here, that we'd be more like what you would have us be, more like the image of your son, not the image of an idol. Lord, I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we do have to ask ourselves as we start out here, uh, 
In Acts chapter 1, we know this letter is written to Theophilus. Uh, Luke is writing this to Theophilus. Commentators tell us, as we remember months ago, Pastor Shane pointed out, Theophilus is a Roman official, probably. And Luke is writing, oh, Theophilus, uh, don't you understand here uh, what is going on? Oh, Theophilus, what is he trying to say to Theophilus here? And I think, uh, real quickly, if you think about the narrative, the irony, the irony, you know what irony is, the irony of this narrative. There's a group of people, idol worshipers, who have come together to protest Paul and his preaching. But at the end of the story, remember I told you it was interesting who would speak. It was this pagan man who was in charge of the temple who spoke, and he's the one who quiets the crowd. So the irony in the story is that the one who they thought was the disruptor of the peace, the disruptor of society, Paul, that's, Demetrius is saying Paul's the one who disrupts society, and, and uh, Luke is saying, no, Theophilus, don't you see? The person who most threatens our society are these idol worshipers. They're the ones trying to say it's Paul, but you, don't you see? They're the one confused. They're the ones in uproar. They're the angry ones. They're the one causing all the confusion, all the riots, all the, all the anger is coming from these idolatrous worships. You see, this is why to a Roman official this would have been a big point. In Rome, there's two rules when they conquer a people, two rules. Uh, you can keep on going, life is normal, but two things. No new religions and no rebellions. And you, no new religions because those new religions lead to rebellions. They didn't care how the people operated as long as they paid taxes to Rome and they didn't rebel, okay? And that's why this, this man is saying, we have to stop making a riot, you worshipers of Diana. You have to stop because if you keep on, Rome's going to come in here and they're going to kill us all. So you've got to stop. And Luke is saying, oh, Theophilus, don't you see? The problem's not with the Christians. The problem is not with the gospel. The problem is with idol worshipers. The problem is with idolatry. And what he's really doing in this text is he's pitting against, he's pitting Jesus and the gospel versus the goddess Diana against idol worship. He's pitting the two against each other. And the, he's saying, oh, Theophilus, don't you see who the one true God is? Don't you see? And, and just what is it? And is it, isn't it interesting, up in the text, uh, he, Demetrius, who has probably never heard Paul speak, he knows Paul's message. He says Paul is going around saying what? That the gods made by hands do not exist, just like what Pastor Phil said. That's what he's preaching. He knows that. And, but just think about the ignorance of thinking. If you create an idol, you make it, you think it's real. Think about that. People who worship idols think that they're real, even though they created them. You see, how is our God superior to the goddess Diana? We believe that God is uncreated. Hey. Our God, we believe, is the first cause. Uh, it, this week we were talking about in our theology lunch the simplicity of God. Just stay with me for like two minutes here, and we'll move past this point. But it is critical, and it's what Paul's message was. And you see, don't you see how why Paul's message always was changing, or as far as changing people's lives and changing culture? Because he always preached against idolatry. Right. Every time he preached the gospel, it was against idolatry. But see, he said, our God is uncreated. Paul's saying, the gods that you worship are made by human hands. They're not gods at all. That, what, what does it mean that God is simple? It means God is pure. It means God is uncreated. You think about it this. We think things that are more complex are better, right? Think about your car. Uh, opposed to my son's tricycle. Why is your car better than my son's tricycle? Why? It's got more parts. It's more complex, isn't it? It can do more things than my son's tricycle. Some of you got cars that the seats warm up and they cool at the same time. How cool is that? Uh, my son's tricycle, it don't do that. 
okay? So we tend to think something more complex is better. But uh, what's the problem, though, as far as creation when that concerns? So therefore, we think God must be complex because he must be the, he's the greatest thing in the world. But for your car to be put together, it had to have independent parts, correct? They existed uh, outside of your car, and somebody had to put them together. So when it comes to God, who put God together? Have you ever heard anybody ask who created God? Well, the, the point is nobody, because God is the type of being that isn't created. He didn't even create himself. God is a different kind of being. He is simple. God is the I am. He is God. He is uncreated. So how is God more superior than uh, the goddess Diana? Paul's saying, you created the goddess Diana. You say this thing fell out of the sky. It's, a, it's just an asteroid. You created, you carved it. You know it's not real, but the God we serve. In Acts 17, he said, our God is not served by human hands as though he needs anything. For in him we live and move and have our being. It is in God that we are created. We have our being and our motion and our life from him. Not he didn't get his life from us, but these idols, they get their life from you. Don't you see that? Don't you see how our God is superior? But he's pitting the two together. Did you notice in the text where the, um, uh, the city clerk, he told him, he said, there's no doubt that it's undeniable that the goddess we serve is majestic and wonderful and real. You see, he's, he's pitting, if you remember Acts chapter 1, verse 1, uh, you remember what Luke said, that Jesus Christ made known by infallible proofs. Right. Infallible, oh, Theophilus, don't you know that Jesus is, is, is the Savior? He's God. He is because of the infallible proofs that we have of it. And then he's comparing that to the city clerk who's saying, oh, the goddess Diana, don't you know she's real? Because the facts about her are undeniable. So then the question is, let's look at the facts. Let's look at the facts and see which one wins. He's pitting the two against each other. Um, and see, uh, we believe in a Trinitarian God. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Luke is teaching uh, New Testament Christians and us today what the Jews in the Old Testament knew about their God, um, which is also the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the New Testament. Not a different God in the Old Testament than there is the New Testament. God, when he acts, he always acts in a Trinitarian fashion, by the way. But he, here's the point. What did the Old Testament know about their God, Yahweh? What did they know? Every time he was compared to the idols, what happened? Every time he'd come up against an idol. Think about the story. Do you remember when the Philistines captured the covenant, uh, the Ark of the Covenant? Do you remember that? And they take that Ark of the Covenant and they take it to the Philistine temple of uh, Dagon. Dagon was some kind of fish man idol. Look up pictures of that. It's crazy, okay? But they put him in there, and then the first night, the first day they walk in there after the ark has been there, and the ark um, represented the presence of God among Israel. And here is the ark of the covenant that they have taken from Israel, and here's Dagon in that temple. And they walk in, and the statue had fallen. Oh, I guess the wind blew. So they put it back up. The next morning they come in, the hands are taken. He's fallen again. His hands have fallen off, and his head is chopped off. Hey, uh-oh. Something about this, this ark thing. We got to get it out of here. It just killed this idol. It's just the God we worship. It just defeated it overnight. Just cut his head off. And then they sent it all throughout the Philistine, and everywhere it goes, people get sick and warts, and they're like, we got to get this thing out. They put it on a donkey in a carriage. They send it back. Just go back. Get it out of here. We cannot compete. We, can, we got nothing for the God of Israel. And then they say, the God of Israel must be the one true God because our gods are nothing compared to him. Right. Remember Elijah on Mount Carmel. Remember that story? In the Bible, 
Uh, Elijah, this is about 100 years after King David ruled. There's a king that rise, King Ahab, and his really nice wife. You remember her name? Oh, Jezebel. That's right. She was real sweet and kind. And uh, it hasn't rained for three years. And Elijah goes in to meet with King Ahab. God tells him to go speak to him. And the king says, Elijah, you're the problem. He says, I'm not the problem. Your biggest problem is God. He said, I I'll prove it. Meet me on top of Mount Carmel. He meets him on top of Mount Carmel and with 450 prophets of Baal, doesn't he? And they're going to see. Elijah said, let's prove once and for all who is God. If Baal be God, y'all worship him. But if, if Yahweh be God, worship him. So the Baal prophets for, he said, let's put God, let's, let's put it to the test. See who's better. See who's the one true God. The Baals, the Baal prophets, they come together. They put a bull sacrifice on the wood, and they pray to Baal. And uh, Elijah says, y'all go first. And they go from morning to lunch. They're cutting their self, the scripture says. That was their custom. And they're just, oh, God, oh, Baal, won't you show yourself? Won't fire fall from heaven? They're going till lunch. And Elijah says, well, maybe Baal, maybe he's went on a journey. Then he says, Maybe Baal's relieving himself. I'll let you translate what that means. <laughs> Nothing happens. He said, all right, my turn. He takes and he builds his altar out of stone, rocks first, then wood, and then the bull sacrifice. And then he douses it with water four times. Water just drenches it. And then he prays, oh God, the turner of hearts, won't you show yourself? Fire falls from heaven and consumes everything, even the rocks. Hey. You ever seen fire consume rocks? No doubt this God was greater than any idol worshipped in the world. This hey. was the one true God. See, the Jews already knew this. And Luke is teaching the New Testament Christians, uh, Jewish or, or not, once turning from idols, that we serve the one true God. Why? With undeniable proofs. And what are the proofs of the book of Acts? Do you remember when Peter and John are being persecuted in the few, first few chapters of Acts? They're going into a, um, the, um, the council that killed Jesus, um, have also persecuting the apostles, and I want to read for you what they say in Acts chapter 5 when they come together. Um, get, uh, Gamaliel, here's what he says in Acts 5.38. He says, in the present case, when it comes to persecuting these Christians and Peter and John, he said, I advise you, leave these men alone, let them go. For if their purpose or endeavor is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop it. You will find yourself fighting against God. Here's what the test is in Acts, Luke says. The test is endurance. Endurance. There's a similar test in the Old Testament um, in Genesis chapter 11. You, anybody remember the story of the Tower of Babel? And don't you see there's a link here to this passage? It says twice that these people are confused all right, there's a link here to the Tower of Babel when these group of people came together and said, let's, here's what they said, let's make a city so big that our name will be remembered forever, that we will be famous. Let's make a city that reaches to the heavens. We will make our name great. We will do this. We will do all these things. But name, we will make our name great. And then in chapter 12, this man named Abraham comes along. And God makes a covenant with Abraham. And God tells Abraham, Abraham, I will make your name great among the nations. I will make you a father of many nations, and on and on about the covenant. Test of endurance. Quick question. Anybody ever heard of anyone from the Tower of Babel? Anybody ever heard one name of somebody who came from the Tower of Babel? Anybody? Next question. Has anybody ever heard of the name of Abraham? 
Seven of you. That's good. Anybody else ever heard of the name of Abraham before? Okay, 20 of you. That's even better. We really got to get in the Bible some, I think, here, church. Uh, what's the point? God said, they said, I will do this. We will make our name great. They're nobody today. Abraham, God said, I will make your name great, Abraham. Everybody knows who Abraham is. Don't you see? Uh, God and his purposes will endure. Question, when it comes to the goddess uh, Diana, has anybody ever seen a goddess Diana temple? Anybody ever been to one, ever seen one? Has anybody been to a living church where they worship the resurrected Christ? Yeah, you're in one this morning, huh? Which one will endure? Don't you see the God of the Bible is eternal? These idols are just temporary. Don't you see our God is superior? Oh, Theophilus, don't you see these idols are nothing? They're created. They are temporal. They fade away into history. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is eternal. Why? Because if you fight against it, you're fighting against God, the one true God, one true God. Uh, yesterday, we were at the festival, uh, the Autumn Leaf Festival in Maysville, and uh, it was just a great day. We got to share the gospel multiple times, but there was a couple men going around working for the city that are in a, I didn't know, this program we have in Jackson County called the Transition Program, where men coming out of incarceration can transition into normal life, and it's a great program here in Jackson County. It really is amazing. We got to share the gospel with multiple of those, those men uh, in that program. Uh, in that organization, and one of them, I don't remember his name, but as he was talking to Chris Cursing, Chris had already presented the gospel to him, I went up to him, I said, hey, do you think Jesus really rose from the dead? I mean, do you really believe that? He seemed to give good Christian. I mean, do you really believe that Jesus, we, what a bunch of crazy people, we believe that a man conquered the grave. I mean, do you really believe that? That's what I asked him, and he said, he said, well, uh, if you go to Buddha's grave, you'll find him. If you go to Muhammad's grave uh, there at Mecca, you'll find him. He said, but if you go to the garden tomb, you won't find him. That's the truth. The brother hit it right on the head. <laughs> uh, Luke said, we have, uh, we have infallible proof in, the resur- in, in Jesus. The resurrection, he's the only one, one, to have claimed to conquer the grave, and two, he's the only one to ever claim to really do it. Don't you see? We have undeniable truth in the Christian faith. We have infallible proof. If you can disprove the resurrection, you can disprove all of the Bible, this whole church. The church you can disprove all of it, and it'll all be for nothing. Oh, but friend, the more you just try to disprove it, I promise you, all the more you will do is prove it. All the more you will prove it. The Bible really does, our faith really does hinge on that indeniable truth. We have a resurrected Savior uh, who really does conquer. And, and real quickly, got to move, but the, the second most ironic thing in the text is the more that Demetrius and the city clerk try to uh, squash Christianity, the more they just do more for it. Uh, you know, we've said the all throughout history, when people are persecuted, missionaries, pastors, Christians all throughout the world, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Every time somebody tries to squash Christianity or the church, it just grows. It just grows. Don't you see the irony in that? That every time the devil, the flesh, the world tries to uh, squash the Christian faith, all they do is help it. All they do is help it. Why? Because they're fighting against God fighting against God. How ironic in the text. They're trying to make Paul stop preaching against idols, but all they do is make Paul look like the good guy here because they're in just such a mess. Uh, how ironic. Um, I find in the Bible some uh, how God works. And here, here's how God is greater than all the other idols. God is sovereign. Idols have no power. Don't you see? Don't you remember uh, in, in the birth of Jesus? Remember where uh, Jesus is born and uh, Bethlehem, but where does he have to go really quickly because Herod wants to kill him? He has to flee to Egypt. Is Herod a good guy? No, Herod's a wicked guy. Herod's a bad guy. But yet, why did he have to go to Egypt? So the prophecy could be filled that the Savior would come out of Egypt. 
He had to be born in Bethlehem. And then he comes back to Nazareth. All that revolved in a way, it seemed like from an earthly perspective, on what the wicked kings did. Don't you see, they only did what God had already planned for them to do. When it come to the cross, when it come to the cross, Peter's first message said, you Sanhedrin, you bunch of wicked bunch, you crucified Jesus. Do you not know that you crucified the Son of God? But by the way, you only did what God pre-planned and ordained for you to do. You only did, you only, Jesus was delivered up to you according to God's foreordained and predestined plan. Don't you see God is sovereign? These idols have no power, but our God is sovereign. Our God is in control of the next move. He's in control of tomorrow. He is sovereign. He is sovereign in all ways. These are just gods. Here's the point. I hope you see through this text that Jesus Christ, the God of the Bible, is triumphant against all other idols. Um, I love, don't you love the passage where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not defeat it. You see, the church is the pillar of truth, Paul tells Timothy. And we are to guard the truth and we are to protect the truth. We are to be the pillar of truth as a church. And Jesus said that will never be defeated. But do you know what the Bible does not say? The Bible does not say that Maisel Baptist Church will triumph. It doesn't say that. Nowhere. Did you know that in America, the church is in fast decline? People are getting saved every day in America, but more people are leaving the Christian faith than gaining it in America. But did you know this? In South America and Africa, millions are joining the kingdom every week. Every week. The gospel was growing. The gospel will not be defeated in this world. The church will not be defeated. But that doesn't mean Maysville Baptist Church won't be defeated. So question, how can we as Christians and part of the family at Maysville Church not make sure Maysville Baptist Church is defeated? It has to do with how you personally and we as a church deal with idolatry, I believe is the answer. How do you deal with idolatry? How do, don't you, and this is the church in Ephesus, okay? Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, okay? But did you know just a generation later, just one generation later, John, or actually just 10, 15 years later, uh, John writes the book of Revelation, and in that book, in the first couple chapters, there's a letter to the Ephesians that says, oh, you've got your theology right, you've got your doctrine right, but he says, you've lost your first love. Did you know right after the first century that the church in Ephesus was dead, there was no more church? Paul spent two and a half years there. Two letters in the Bible were written there, but the church in 50 years dies. Door shut. Church, what I'm trying to tell you is we are just one generation from these church doors being shut. One generation. The Bible says in the Old Testament there's a generation that rose that knew not God. And that all depends on what we do with the gospel. It all depends on if we're going to guard the gospel, for one, are we going to share the gospel? What are we going to do with the gospel? And all that has to do with idolatry. So here, we must go to this next point, the most important. Um, so here, you know, in Acts 17, there was, there was a God. As Paul went to Athens, there was a God on every corner. There was a God of everything. And you might say, I'm glad we don't live in a culture with a bunch of idols. Uh, but I'd like to argue that we do. But you say, Chris, we don't see statues everywhere. Yeah, that's true. But um, I, I want to explain to you what I believe biblically is an idol and I want you to say, so Chris, you're just being naive. We don't live in an animalistic society where we worship flying things and winged things and animals. Okay, well, what idols do we worship? Well, first, let me define what I believe biblically an idol is according to the Ten Commandments. God said, you should have no other gods. You should make no other idol. You should make no idols to be worshipped, right? That's commandment number two. So if worship of God is the first commandment, 
okay? And what is worship, okay? And I think that's the question. I think one reason we don't understand idolatry is, one, we don't understand salvation, and we don't understand worship. But first, let me give you, I believe, what a definition of idol would be. Anything other than God that we functionally find salvation in. You see, right before in Acts chapter 20, when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, he says, I brought you out of Egypt. I saved you, therefore here are the commandments. You see, um, what I believe in idol is anything we look to for salvation other than God, even functionally. And here you say, well, that may have not hit you. Let me tell you why that may have not hit you, right? Because what you think salvation is is just going to heaven. You see, that's really not salvation. That's just a byproduct of salvation. This is a result of salvation. Uh, thank God it is part of it. But see, what salvation is, is what you find meaning in. It's what you find purpose in. It's what you find your value in. It's what you find your identity in. It's what is your most important source of happiness and joy and identity and meaning and hope. Where is that? What is that in your life? If it's anything other than God, it's an idol. For instance, you, uh, you, you may come to church, you may read your Bible, you may attend faithfully, go to four Bible studies during the week, you may do all that, but still look for something else for your core happiness. What gives you the most happiness is not the gospel, though it's not Jesus, it's something else. It can be your family, it can be your career, it can be your banking, it can be a hundred different things. Don't you see, how did they form idols? Um, they had God for everything. They had a God for work, a God for play, a God for pleasure. A God. They had hundreds and thousands of gods. They were overt about it, uh, but we're covert about it. You see, here's what a, an idol is. It's not bad things most of the time. It's usually not like drugs or something like that. that we, and we think that's idolatry, and in a way it is because drug addicts, they, they turn to those drugs for the source of comfort and satisfaction and joy. But that's most of the time not, that's not how it happens. Most of the time we take good things and make them ultimate things. And there, your family, you turn to your family. God has given you a family, and that's a good thing, but your ultimate source of happiness is your family or your spouse. Where you get your ultimate source of love that really makes you go is your spouse or your romantic partner or however. I mean, we, we do that. We make idols just like they did. It's anything that we look to um, for our functional uh, joy and um, satisfaction. And we see this in the Old Testament defined as idols as well. In Isaiah 30 through 31, but if you wanted to write down Isaiah 31 to look at afterwards, it's an interesting um, passage in Isaiah where Israel has made a pact, a treaty with Egypt in, in Old Testament history. And they made that pact with Egypt so Egypt would protect them from other armies. And Isaiah comes and he preaches against the kings of Israel and he says, leaders, you have committed idolatry. I bet they're thinking, well, why? I mean, we just made a, a, a treaty for Egypt and them to protect us. What did we do wrong? Don't you see what you did wrong? Is the only one who can give you real protection is God. But you're looking to another source for that protection other than God. I mean, just an example, maybe, you know, women uh, definitely, and men too, though. Men too want security. And maybe, woman, uh, wife, where you really look to security is in your husband instead of God. Uh, sir, maybe what you really look for security is in your career success. Ma'am, maybe that's you. Or, or maybe what you really look for future uh, ongoing and your safety is in your retirement bank account. Or whatever. I mean, that's how we make idols. And that's where we get our ultimate source of joy. And, and here, let's talk about how do we know um, what idols are? How can we determine what they are? Ask yourself a couple questions. Um, one, uh, would I get fighting mad if this thing was threatened in my life? You see, if you take away something good in somebody's life, they just get sad and they grieve. But if you take somebody's idol away, 
Demetrius will get the whole bunch together and they'll take 24,000 people and start killing people. You take somebody's idol away and they will fight you. That's the difference. What is in your life that it was taken away that you would seriously, you could not live without? That you would not be you without it? If that's anything other than the gospel in Jesus Christ, you have an idol in your life. Now, ask this question. Uh, what can you not do without? Would it be certain people in your life? Would it be certain hobbies in your life? Would it be money? Would it be family? What, would it be a political cause? What would it be? I, and I'm, you hear what I'm saying? These are good things. But the problem is we make them ultimate things, and that's where we look to, and we ask those things to give us only that which God can give us. Don't you see if you do that with your spouse, what you'll do to them? If you look to your spouse for that, that, or a friend for that ultimate source of love, and you'll ask them to love you the way only God can love them, you'll crush them with your expectations. You see? And they'll crush you because they're not perfect. Their imperfections will crush you, and you'll just kill each other, okay? And here's why it's so important um, that we understand what our idols are, is because what they do to us. It's what, what they do to us. Um, for instance, we're talking about these commitment cards today. Praying this every day. I know some of you are thinking, Oh, gosh, I don't want to pray that because I'm scared he might really give me an opportunity to do it. Question, what are you really worshiping in that moment? People's opinion? Because do you think people's opinion of you, is that what really matters? Is that really where, is it depending on how many likes you get on social media or how many shares or, I don't know, I can't keep up with the new things. I mean, how many, all right, let's not talk TikTok, but I don't know. I mean, is that, is that what depends upon your really source of identity and self-worth? Or is it in Jesus Christ? Or is it in the gospel? We need to figure out what our idols do, uh, what our idols are in our own life, in our church's life, in our culture's life. So, one, so we can rightly preach the gospel. Every time pre Paul preaches the gospel, it's against idolatry. You're applying the gospel to your own life, and I hope you preach the gospel to yourself every day. That's a great Christian principle. It's a great Christian discipline. You have to apply it to the idols in your life. And here's why it's so important. One, idols leave us confused. Didn't you see in the text, the people show up the riot, they didn't even know why they were there. There was confusion all over the city. Don't you see, that's what idols do. They confuse us. Um, I remember uh, hearing the testimony of Deion Sanders, prime time, yeah. You remember his testimony? Have you ever heard it? Maybe you should look it up. It's on YouTube. He says that after he won his first Super Bowl, he said he got back to the hotel they room that night, and he thought, huh, that's it? It's not quite as great as I thought it was going to be. And he said, I just went to a depressed state. Is there not more? I gave my whole life to accomplishing. My joy was in getting the Super Bowl, and now I've got it. I, why do I not feel satisfied? Why do I not feel like that's enough? He's, he's confused. You see, that's what idols do. See, idols make promises to us, but they never deliver. They never deliver. Uh, hey, what about this? Um, we can make an idol out of our children. How many times do you see parents living their life out through their children? Why? Because their children have become an idol. And, and here's what always happens when that happens, doesn't it? One of two things. Your kids, if you make an idol out of your kids, they will do one of two things. One, they'll run so far from you, they never want to come back. Why? Because you put such heavy expectations. Why? Because they are functionally your God. Your source of joy is their achievements. Right? Your source of true happiness and self-worth is how well they do, not God, not the gospel. And because of that, either one, they will get so far up under you, they'll be scared to go into life because they have to be so close to you they can never leave home. Or two, they'll run so far because they want nothing to do with you. Why? And then you're confused. You're like, why doesn't my kid love me? Why doesn't my kid, what's wrong with them? Maybe you made an idol out of them. How about this one? I see this one a lot, and so do you. Uh, parents who encourage their kids to make an idol out of sports. There's nothing wrong with high school sports. 
nothing wrong with sports. But what is a good thing, you make an ultimate thing, you make an idol out of it. And here's what is confusing about that one happens. Oh, you get them in there and you've you got to get that college scholarship. You know, whatever it takes, all church, all family life, all of it. We've got to get that college scholarship. God help us if we don't get it. I don't know what we'll do. And you drive, you drive and drive it, and then they get to 11th grade and they're like, I don't even like that sport anymore. I don't even like that. I don't even like football. I don't even like it. I don't even like whatever it is. And then a parent, you're like, what do you mean you don't like it? We've got to get this scholarship. You better like it. What happened? You let them, you even encouraged them to make an idol, make something good, something ultimate. Yeah, I know you're wishing maybe you shouldn't have come this morning. I understand. Hey, look, I, I, didn't get a, I had to preach this to myself before I brought it here this morning, just telling you, honestly. And it was rough on me this week trying to get ready for this because I had to examine my own self. And I found a lot more idols than I thought was there, to be honest with you. They make slaves out of us. Not one, they confuse you, and two, idols always make slaves out of us. You see, they were in an uproar. You see, he thought he, he was using um, uh, the god. Dimitri thought he was using the goddess to make him money, but don't you see, when his idol was threatened, the slave of the idol had to fight. You, you touch somebody's idol and they'll want to fight. Why? Because they become slaves of that thing. Uh, take, for instance, you, you see, here's what I wrote down. It always starts as you are going to use whatever you're talking about, whatever object, you're going to use that. And there's nothing wrong with using these good things God has given us. But if it becomes an idol, that thing then controls you. That's one way to tell. That thing then controls you. Um, um, hey, you see this. People go into retirement, you know, and here's what they say their whole life. Hey, I'm going to work two-thirds of my life as hard as I can to make as much money as I can. So what? The last third of my life, I can enjoy it in retirement. Nothing wrong with that. Sounds good. But what happens so many times when people get to the point of retirement? They can't do it. They can't enjoy it. Why? Because they have so become what their career, they were just going to use this career to make money. But then they're so tied up in this career, they cannot be themselves apart because their meaning and identity is in their career and what they do. So they can't quit working because they're tied up in that career. They can never not be that career. You see, what they wanted to use is now they're a slave to that thing. That's what they always, idols always make us a slave to themselves. That's how it works. Uh, and then they're violent. You see, that's the problem. You look at suicide rates today. Um, you see this when people lose their money, they go bankrupt. What happens so many times? They commit suicide. And what happened? They were in the thralls of an idol, and that idol killed them. That idol ate them. That idol killed them. According to Aspen Institute, 16% of suicides happen in response to financial issues. Financial issues. So why do people commit suicide when financial troubles come? Why? Their God is spoken to them, and they're slaves to it. Their idol has been attacked. Uh, you talk about youth today. We let so many of our youth idolize uh, whoever they're dating or going out with. I, I can't keep up what they call it today, but who they, whatever they do with the other people. Uh, we let them idolize that. We let them so idolize that that, did you notice, 40% of teenage breakups result in clinical depression. Why? Why? Their idol is gone. They've become a slave to that thing. And don't you see, um, they always... Uh, require a sacrifice. Idols always require a sacrifice of ourselves. How many parents sacrifice their... We, we don't have children sacrifice, do we, like they did in the Old Testament, like they did in Paul's day? We don't do that. How many parents sacrifice their kids on the altar of career success? How many? Why? Because they made an idol of those things. So here's the most important part of the sermon. How do you and I get idols out of our life? 
oh, Theophilus, don't you? Theophilus probably worshiped idols. He was a Roman um, leader. Oh, Theophilus, how do you get idols out of your life? It's the first point, don't you see? Go back to the first part of the sermon. How do you get idols? You see the superiority of Christ. You treasure him in your life. You see, the answer is not to love the good things less. The answer is to love Jesus more. And the only way you can do that is to see him as he really is. Oh, Theophilus, don't you see that Paul couldn't go to the crowd? That Paul, they wouldn't let Paul go in there, but he was willing to, but he didn't. But don't you see there was another crowd, a religious, idolatrous crowd? And by the way, that's the worst kind of idolatry because people think they're worshiping God when they're really worshiping their own obedience and their own knowledge. But they think they were This crowd is the crowd that crucified Jesus. And don't you see, O Theophilus, an idol can never die for you. An idol can never die for you, but Jesus Christ, he died for you. Old Testament prophets, they had a problem. Our Old Testament, not prophets, uh, scholars today, as I was reading on some commentaries, when they look in the Old Testament, God told Israel that Israel was his wife, that they were in covenant and that they were like his wife, Israel was. And when uh, Israel would commit idolatry and go worship idols, God would say, you have committed adultery. So adultery was the metaphor for idolatry when it becomes between God and Israel in that relationship. But here in Hosea, this was the problem. Okay, God would say, I'm going to divorce Israel. I'm going to divorce them, then I'll bring them back. Well, all the Old Testament, uh, the Jewish scholars had a problem. Said, Wait a minute. God's not playing by the rules here because in God's rules are the um, penalty for adultery is death. So if Israel's committed adultery, then they have to die. But God's not killing them. So, and what they conclude is the metaphor doesn't work here, okay? The metaphor can only go so far, and that's okay, so they move on. But Christians, don't you see? Don't you see? Don't we have the answer? Yes, there a death must be paid for idolatry. God does require a payment for idolatry, and it is death. God hasn't broken the rules, but what has happened? Our heavenly husband, the church is the bride of Christ, and Christ has come to this earth in human form, has added uh, humanity to his deity, and he came and he paid the price for our idolatry. Don't you see, uh, how do you break idols in your life? Idols can never deliver. They'll only make you a slave. They'll only defeat you. Don't you see that an idol cannot die for you? Only Jesus died for you. He's the only one in the world that has ever died for you. He's the only one. You have to look to Jesus. I was reading a, a biography on Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher from London uh, in the late 200s, early 1900s. You've probably heard his name, Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon, uh, as he was wrestling with the gospel, he's trying to figure out what he can do to be saved. He, he's going to church one Sunday, but there's a big blizzard, and he can only jump in this little primitive Methodist church. And he jumps in this little primitive Methodist church, and he says there's less than 10 people, and apparently the preacher, the pastor of that church, couldn't make it that day. <laughs> he must have got snowed in, he said. So they got a layman up there preaching, and he preaches from Isaiah 45, 22. It says, look unto me, and you will be saved until all the ends of the earth. Look unto me and you'll be saved. And he says, there's less than 10 people. The, the Laban preacher, he said, son, I don't know you, but you look miserable. The only way that you'll find joy in this world or the next is to look unto God. He said, I've never been, had anybody point me out from a pulpit, and that's not real popular. He said, but in that moment, I got it. He said, when I got saved, I wanted to do 50 things for God. He said, but what I realized, I can do nothing for him. All I can do is look. All I can do is look. How do you defeat idolatry in your life? You look to Jesus. You look to Jesus. When you look to Jesus, you find he's the only one that can pay your price for your sin. And two, he's the only one that can be there for you. Yesterday, as we were at the festival, I speak to a sweet mama and daughter. Got to share the gospel with them. 
They began to just cry. They had lost their father and husband a couple years ago. And they said they just hadn't went forward without him. Don't you see, if you make an idol out of somebody, for instance, if you make an idol out of your spouse, one day one of you is going to die before the other. I mean, it's just facts, right? One of you is going to die without the other. And in that moment when you're at their funeral and they're there in the casket and there you'll be sitting down, you see, they can't be there for you. Your idol can't be there for you. He can't comfort you. She can't comfort you because she's dead. Oh, but if God is your God and you worship God, he will always be there for you. He will never leave you. I'll walk. Don't, don't you see, even if he's your God, uh, if I, Psalms 23, if I walk through the, he leads me through the valley of the shadow of death. Don't you see, if your husband or your friend or your wife or anybody is your idol, whatever your idols are, money, uh, possessions, education, political, whatever your idols are, don't you see, when you die, that's as far as they'll ever go. Why, they're temporary. Only Jesus can go with you through that moment. He's the only shepherd that can go. He's the only God that can go with you through that moment. Why? He's the only one true God who died for you and conquered the grave. So here's the question this morning. One, Christian, what idols are in your life? Where are you really finding meaning and joy and value and self-worth and identity? Is it something else other than the gospel? Maybe if you really looked at yourself, just had to believe I've never found that kind of salvation ever in my life. You're a professing Christian, maybe today you need to get saved. Maybe you need to fully trust and rely on Jesus because you realize everything else is going to let you down. Maybe this morning you've never professed to be a Christian, but you, you want to throw those idols away. We call that repenting. First Thessalonians 1 9, Paul said, You Thessalonians, you turn from idols and turn to the one true God. Maybe this morning you want to turn to the one true God. Would you bow your head and pray with me? Here in just a minute, these altars are going to be open. We'd love to invite you to come and pray at this altar and repent of your idolatry this morning. Turn from those idols and turn to Christ, Christian. Turn. Turn back to him. He's the one true God. He's the only one who can give you what you really need, what you really want. Maybe today, for the first time, you want to repent of your idolatry Turn from those idols and turn to the living Savior who conquered the grave, who died on the cross for you. How do you do that? The Bible says you you just have to do that. You have to repent and place your trust and faith in Jesus. Are you persuaded that he is greater than all the other idols? Are you persuaded of that? Are you convinced of that? Oh, friend, the Bible says then you just must profess your faith. Here at Basil Baptist Church, we believe a profession of faith is baptism. So this morning, if, if you are turning from idols and turning to Christ, you need to profess that. You need to be baptized. You need to tell the world and show them that you turn from idols to the one and true Savior. Maybe you'd like to follow through with that. Would you come? Would you speak to us? I'll be here at this altar. I'd love for you to come, accept you, help you through this moment, lead you into baptism. However the Lord is acting on you and has spoken to you this morning, I pray you would respond. Father, God, as we sing this song, Lord, may we sing it with our heart. May we listen to the words. May your word from the word of God, Acts 19, may it resound in our head and in our heart, and may it transfer to our hands. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.